0: Good to see everybody this evening. We're just moseying right along in our study. Uh, Let me mention something to you tonight that's very important to keep in mind. Uh, I don't know if you've noticed, it's not the point of this video to do any type of exposition of each chapter Passage by passage, chapter by chapter. It kind of leaves that to the teacher to do. And what they're doing in the video is just covering some themes. Jonathan, this may be a little too loud. It seems like it to me. Does it to y'all? I'm getting some kind of feedback somewhere. Maybe it's the monitors on... Okay. Uh, The video highlights some real-life examples of situations involving modern-day people in 2020 and things that are associated with the different subject matters and themes in the book of Daniel. Okay? Is that is that clear? So, uh, I hope you're not being confused by that, looking at the video and thinking, hmm, I, you know, the video for on chapter 3... Didn't directly apply to chapter three. Uh, the video on chapter four isn't going to directly apply to that. That's, it's, it's more kind of like a teaser. And uh, anyway, does that make sense? That makes sense. So it kind of le- and, and the book they give you, uh, kind of does the same type of stuff. That's why I've not been trying to use it exhaustively because the way they just kind of jump around with, with different themes. Uh, on the on the matter, but all throughout the study, what what have I been emphasizing? Uh, that Daniel, when we see about Daniel and how he applies his situation applies to our situation, uh, we see that he sought and light in a pagan land, right? Salt and light in a pagan land. God doesn't call us. Boy, it'd be nice if all of our work was within the walls of the church or a community where everybody believed just like we believe. Man, wouldn't life be easy? Wouldn't our Christian faith be easy? But what does God do? He shakes us out of the salt shaker. He calls us to shine the light of Christ in very dark places. In the video tonight, now buckle up your seatbelts, okay? And don't don't send me letters about what you're going to see tonight, okay? You're going to see a couple of individuals in scenarios where you and I wouldn't be comfortable ministering. Okay? But we're going to talk after the video tonight. Does that mean what they're doing is not legitimate? We're going to see how this first guy, he's reaching an audience that I would never reach and you would never reach. For one thing, I wouldn't go where he's going. Because as a pastor, I would want to guard my testimony. OK? But this guy feels called to do it, and he's doing it. And now his Sunday night group is reaching over 600 people in this situation he's going into. Okay? So again, uh, there'll be some examples on the video tonight you might feel a little bit uncomfortable about. And I would too. But yet, we need people in places like that. What are we seeing in our world today? More and more in our world today, people are not like you and me. They don't look like us, they don't act like us, they don't do the things we do. And what's the Great Commission say? Y'all come in here. We'll be here with the lights on Sunday morning, 10-15. Y'all come in here. Is that what Matthew 28 says? No. What's it say? Go and tell. And so these, one of these guys you're going to see tonight is doing that. He's going and telling. <laughs> I'm not going to repeat that. (laughs) You can talk to Jim afterwards what he just said. (laughs) Sure, sure. Um, It's a changing world out there for the church today. I've told you before, my mother-in-law, when she and her husband were in the ministry back in the, 40s, 50s, 60s. You could plant a sign in your front yard. This week, revival. And everybody would see it. And they would pack out the church every night to hear the evangelists that had come to town. She said the Methodists and the Presbyterians would join us. And then a couple weeks later... The Methodists would have their revival. We'd all go there. Presbyterians would have their revival. We would all go there. You put a sign in the front yard of a church today, revival next week. And we, we come in and cut the lights on, get ready, and a lot of our deacons wouldn't even be here. <laughs> I'm picking on deacons. But my point is the lost world certainly isn't going to beat the doors down to get in. So, we go to them. So, whatever you think about this first guy in the video tonight, I just I want you to remember, he's going to them. He's going to where they are. Now, he was one to go there himself anyway. And he saw a need there and, and didn't see people reaching him, so he did. But anyway, you could argue he's being a Daniel in a dark place. And so we need to be Daniel's today. And that's going to call us, if, if we're serious about the Great Commission, it's going to call us maybe into some different settings than we've been accustomed to before. Okay? We essentially live in a, in a Babylonian culture too. I mean, you think of all the false gods Babylon had. And and you think of what a pagan environment it was. And how Daniel and his friends were so much the minority. That's us today, isn't it? Same type thing that, that we face. And so how do we make a difference? What do we learn about Daniel in chapter one? How did he begin to make a difference? Staying true? Staying true to God? Okay? It's time we replace a board. David Fink worked this week on this board trying to put us in he buffed the surface and put a coat on it and all that. And I'm gonna have to tell David, I think I think you wasted your time. We just need to buy a new board. But anyway. Staying true to his God? What else in chapter four? Anything? He what? Whoa. Okay. What else? Anything else? What else do we see Daniel doing in the early chapters of the book of Daniel? He didn't, go along with the crowd. didn't go along with the crowd.
1: Okay.
0: All of his actions were done in humility. Okay. Actions done in humility. Um, keep going with that, Kathy. What else, in addition to the humility, do you see as he's relating to his superiors? Very respectful. Very respectful. Very respectful of those that were in charge of him, right? He didn't just get in their face and say, I'm not going to do that and you can't make me. He put proposals before him, right? And uh, then he put the matter in God's hands. Thank you, Dr. Willis. Maybe that'll help too. (laughs) Okay, what else? Rick. Okay. I think it's the surface. Faithful in faithful in his devotion. Okay. Yes. Okay. What else? Instead of me writing on, just talk and we'll we'll listen. Just talk loud enough for folks to hear you. Built relationships, okay. Purpose not to defile himself; he uh, he stayed true to his God and his convictions, didn't he? Anything else? Always gave God the glory. 24-7, he was a man of integrity. In fact, later on, we're going to see how even after they put his life under a spotlight, uh, trying to find something wrong with him so they could accuse him before the king, they couldn't find anything. That's integrity, isn't it? That's integrity. Well, folks, we live in a selfish world where everybody's about themselves, we live in a prideful prideful world, and we live in a world that doesn't know anything about humility. And so as Christians, we need to demonstrate godly humility. We need to serve others. We need to live for God and others and not self. We need to humble ourselves, right? And serve God and serve others and be men and women of integrity ourselves. And and be willing to stand on our own convictions. Like we saw last week how they said, even if our God doesn't rescue us, know this, that we will not serve you and your false image.
2: Stand up where he needed to. And right. God was, uh, they were tight at this yeah. point. Yeah. And he was a type of Christ in a sense. Sure. That he had such a tight relationship with God, nothing was going to peel him away. And I think that's where all of that comes from. Yeah. It's just the fact that he was fearless because he knew his God was there. Yeah. What did he say at the furnace? Hmm. Our God will protect us. And yep. if not, it's His will. Sure. And that, I yep. think, just summates everything right here. That's
0: yep. Our God may save us. He may not. We may die. But we're going to be faithful to Him regardless. Do we live with that kind of courage and conviction? Okay, well, tonight in chapter 4, we're, we're going to talk a lot about humility. We're going to see how King Nebuchadnezzar was filled with pride, how God humbled him, the lessons God taught him, and then when he humbled himself, God restored everything to him. Uh, But before we get into that, again, we're just going to see some life stories. And these are not going to apply directly to chapter 4. But we're going to continue seeing some of the life stories that uh, Larry Osborne and those on the video have been presenting to us about how we are to live in our Babylon. And I can't wait to hear what you have to say about some of the examples that he shows in the video tonight. So Jonathan, if you'd get us started in that.
3: Welcome back to Thriving in Babylon. As we have seen in this series, there's a lot we can learn from the story of Daniel about how we are called to live as Christians in our culture today. Instead of throwing in the towel of our faith, we have been encouraged to trust in the sovereignty of God, hope in our eternal home, and treat everyone with love and respect. In this last session, Larry will explain how to navigate culture with wisdom like Daniel did. We'll consider when we should compromise, when we should stand firm in our convictions, and when we might be creating extra rules in fear. First, let's hear from Ezra. He was on tour with his band when he came across a gospel event in a bar. Yes, discussions about faith in a bar. Listen as he shares how his willingness to go to places others are uncomfortable going has led to opportunities to impact God's kingdom.
4: Been invited when I was touring to a bar in Dallas. Decided to visit it, went in, it was remarkable. And they were having an event with a speaker who was speaking to the veracity of Scripture and taking questions from the crowd. Seeing that boldness was absolutely riveting. Told my wife I'd really like to do an outreach, specifically targeted in pubs. Prayed and waited. A few months later, They built a pub on my house. Uh, Came here and asked them if I could do a ministry outreach on Sunday evenings, and was told, absolutely not. Sat on the idea for several months, continued praying, came back, and there was a new manager. She said that she would check with the, uh, the owners. The owners remembered me from my band and said yes. So it started here at The Gentleman of Fort Worth. We had roughly 30, 40 people. In two years, we have grown from 40 friends to 600 people. We decided to call our ministry the Bible and beer consortium. The name has caused uh, some questions and some concerns, largely from people who have never been to events. Had an instance here at the gentleman where a pastor came to an event and he came here to confront me. But after seeing the event, openly asked my forgiveness and said that it was an amazing thing to witness firsthand. That was that was incredible, that someone would prayerfully come here, even against their tradition, to see what in the world is it that someone is doing, having these discussions in a bar. I promote the events through social media. Um, Hundreds show up, but there are always those that are there at the bar that are unaware of what's going on, that afterwards tell me until they love it. Um, we've seen them return time and time again and bring friends. I see at BBC events, hundreds of people that have said openly they would never visit a church, but they will come to bars to hear things that are explicitly pro-God, pro-Bible, but it is well worth it, seeing people changed, seeing people brought into discussions that they would avoid otherwise. There is no gospel-free zone. What we are called to do, what I'm called to do, goes into very dark places, but in those places, His light shines even brighter. you know there's a word that we as christians
1: often find ourselves uncomfortable with but it's really not always a bad word it's a word compromise one of the things that jumps out to me about daniel is not only his hope not only his humility but his wisdom to pick his battles incredibly carefully i mean when you look back at daniel he didn't seem to be bothered when his name was changed from one that honored jehovah god to being called satan's prince belshazzar his new name Uh, It didn't seem to bother him when he was asked to study astrology and the occult for three years. In fact, he didn't pout about it and sit in the back and complain. He sat in the front row and graduated number one in his class. He didn't seem to be really all that upset when he was put into service of the godless king that had destroyed his country, had, had taken things from the temple and mocked God. Somehow in all of those situations, he made a compromise. Now, there were times where he decided to draw the line. One of those was where God had a very clear law uh, as far as diet. When he was presented with the king's diet, which was not kosher, he stood his ground very politely and very humbly. He asked if there was a way around it. He got uh, a a test given to him of 10 days. At the end of those 10 days, he was found more healthy than those that were eating the non-kosher diet. And so he got away with it. But it seems to be that if he had not been allowed to make that switch, he was willing to suffer the consequences, no matter what they might be. But in so many other areas, he just figured it wasn't worth the fight. And I remember being very confused by that and wondering, what's going on with this? Because like many Christians, the idea of any sort of compromise was seen as as stepping back and not honoring God. And then I realized a very important principle, and it is simply this. There is a difference between what God forbids and what we don't like. There are standards that God puts upon His people, but He doesn't put upon all people. In 1 Corinthians chapter 5, a passage that talks about church discipline in the body of Christ, there's a list of sins. And we're told if a believer does these things, we are to separate from them. But at the same time, we're told that we're not to separate from non-believers who do these things because we'd have to leave the world. And of course, we would have no influence. And that seems to have been a real key for Daniel, to be able to pick his battles. For there was a command against practicing astrology in the occult, but there was no command against studying it. And frankly, when he graduated number one in his class, rather than refusing to take the class, it set him up for later on when he was able to tell the king that it was a bunch of baloney and the answer to the king's dream that God had given him had come from God, not from all the Babylonian dark arts that he had learned. You know, there's another example of someone who who, uh, drew the line and and that would be Rahab. She lied to the authorities to protect the lives of the Hebrew uh, spies that came into town. Back in the day of Moses, the Hebrew midwives were told that they were to uh, kill all the newly born male uh, Jewish boys and they refused to do that. So there certainly is a time and a place where we need to stand strong, but we must never fall into the easy trap. Of what i'm uncomfortable with god forbids or what god asked me as a christian to do he commands everybody else to do
5: my earliest memory of of god was when i was around age eight i just remember looking off into the sky and talking to god and then asking if he was real and when i said that um, the whole sky lit up with lightning and for me that was just an affirmation I knew at that moment that I wanted to follow him for the rest of my life. Although I did, you know, want to follow God and I, and I had faith, of course I messed up and, and made some bad choices. Uh, I did become pregnant at 16. Going through my, my teen pregnancy and a lot of the, the problems that I'd had in my, in my first relationship created so much stress that I ended up dropping out of high school. And a few years later, I found myself working for Planned Parenthood. I, I felt like it was a great achievement to be offered this position as a manager to run this clinic. And and that was my mindset initially going in, um, thinking that my hands were clean, I wasn't directly involved, I didn't facilitate in any way with abortion. But it wouldn't be until just a few months into working for Planned Parenthood that I realized that that was not the case. I remember a young woman coming in, she was a college-aged young lady, I sat her down in the exam room and said, you know, congratulations on your pregnancy. But I had failed to see that the young woman wanted a referral for abortion. And she said, you know, I've made my decision. This is this is what we want to do. And my boyfriend and I have talked about it. And I said, okay. And so I gave her, you know, the, the form that has the information to where she could receive her abortion. And of course, one of them being, you know, the Planned Parenthood. She left in tears and I went into my office and I shut the door and I began to cry. I just felt like I had betrayed God, and I felt like I was betraying everything that I had believed in and held dear and true to myself for so long, and so I, I had to I had to confront that head on, and that was something that I, I found very difficult because I wanted to keep my job, but then I had all of this, these moral conflicts that were taking place. I couldn't sleep at night. I, I couldn't look at myself in the mirror most days. Uh, because I realized that by being silent and by making referrals and by not speaking up for these innocent babies in the womb and their mothers, that I was directly facilitating an abortion. and I was directly involved in a great deal of sin. When I walked away from Planned Parenthood, I walked away from everything and we didn't know where that next paycheck was going to come from. We didn't know how we were going to pay for the mortgage or pay for our car. And I thought back to that time when I was a little girl, you know, eight years old, and telling God that I would always follow him. And I felt like for me, this was a a second chance. Even though I didn't know exactly where God was calling me, I knew that God was calling me to always speak up and not be silent anymore.
3: Have you ever been in a situation where your personal convictions were challenged, like Ramona? Her story is one of courageous wisdom. Though Ramona needed her job, she held firm to her convictions by leaving it, and she trusted God to provide. What if she had been too scared to leave? How can we avoid living in fear? Let's find out.
1: When it comes to having wisdom in Babylon, one of the things we've gotta be careful of is that we don't fall in the trap of becoming what I like to call scaredy-cat Christians. Now, what's a scaredy-cat Christian? Well, candidly, it's somebody who gives Satan way too much credit. So we become afraid of events, of holidays, of places, of things, and people, as if somehow we can catch his evil by osmosis. We need to remember that he is a liar. That's his nature. He's been a liar from the very beginning. And, but what scaredy cat Christians do is they believe all of his lies. And they end up thinking that anything that uh, is slightly touched by him or is influenced by him or the evil in our world somehow by osmosis will bring us down. He doesn't have that much power. Greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world actually when we fall into scaredy cat christianity what we tend to do is we 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 make our god look weak to the world around us Uh, non-christians look and they they shake their head like so you're afraid of this holiday or you're afraid of that or you won't go here or you won't do that and and uh, what what has happened is we've usually fallen into one of two traps or made one of two mistakes the first one is a trap called legalism now, now, legalism leads to scaredy-cat Christianity because we are afraid God will be angry at us if we don't keep a bunch of rules that, frankly, aren't found in the Bible. Here's the weird thing about legalism. There's always a Bible verse for every extra man-made rule. So legalism is based on the Bible, but in reality, it's never found in the Bible. These are rules that, like the Pharisees of New Testament days, we make because we want to help God out. He has a fence here, so we decide to put two or three fences out in front of it just to make sure. Well, at the end of the day, when we have a bunch of man-made fences, people out there who are looking at us, they confuse our man-made fences with God's fences. And they look at us and they think, what in the world is wrong with us? We'll never make God look bad when we live in line with His rules. But we always make Him look weak when we have to add extra rules to the things that he's told us in the Bible. Now there's a, another form of it and it's, it's what I call spiritual cooties. Now what I mean by spiritual cooties, it's, it's maybe you remember in elementary school, it's that uh, person or whatever that everybody ran away from and they said, oh, they got cooties, they got cooties. If they touch me, I've got whatever it is they had. Well, we often feel like the things of the enemy by again, osmosis can somehow touch us and bring us down. I like to tell the story of a spear that I have in my office. I had the privilege of uh, being 200 miles into the Amazon. And it was with a group of people who uh, up to 11 years before I was there had never had any contact with civilization. Uh, I was a real live witch doctor in this little village. And uh, during one night he was doing his drugged up incantation, screaming and yelling and doing all this stuff. Well, the next morning, I went over to him, and I asked him if I could have, through an interpreter obviously, his spear. Uh, I wanted the spear that he used in his demonic ceremony. And, and by the way, it's one of only a couple times in my life where I knew I was in the presence of absolutely demonic power. It was a scary situation. I took his sword, I forget uh, a spear, I took a spear. I forget what I gave him for it, and I took it home. It's in my office today. It is there as a reminder that I have nothing to fear from a lying enemy, that greater is the Lord in me, as I said earlier, than he who is in the world. But you'd be shocked how many people tell me, bad things are gonna happen to you because I've had that spear. Well, I've had that spear for about 25 years in that office and I wanna tell you nothing but good things have happened because greater is he who is in us than he who is in the world. If you're a follower of Jesus, there's no reason to be a scaredy cat. There's no reason for legalism. There's no reason to fear spiritual cooties. Just follow what God has said to do. Live with wisdom, live with humility, hold on to hope, and you can thrive in Babylon.
3: We can be tempted as Christians to run away from anything secular or popular in culture. But like we saw in this session, there is wisdom in compromise and Wisdom in knowing the difference between what God actually forbids and what we just don't like. As you head into your group discussion, consider how you navigate living in the world, but not of the world. Think about where you might need to put your foot down or how your fear of culture might be leading you down a legalistic road that isolates you from reflecting Christ to others. And finally, I hope you will encourage each other about how to not only survive, but thrive where God has you today. Thank you for watching.
0: Tonight's the last of the videos, but it's not the last of our study. Uh, you can't help...
2: <laughs>
0: what, what we're going to see tonight is to be used by God, we have to be humbled. Now, before we get into all that, uh, you look at the video tonight, the... Uh, Personalities in it, and it kind of helps you realize we're not in Mayberry anymore, are we? We're not in Mayberry anymore. Um, what do you think about the church in Fort Worth and the pub? Don't get me wrong, I'm not making a proposal at our next business conference that we start a church and a pub. But uh, sad to say, there's probably... Ten times, probably a hundred times, millennials tonight in Cabarrus County and Mecklenburg County in pubs than there are in churches. There's probably a hundred times more millennials in pubs tonight than in churches. And here's a guy. Saw, went into one and saw somebody teaching on the veracity of scripture. Thought, hey, I can do that in a place like this and they've gone from 30 or 40 to 600 if you go on their website he brings people in like William Lane Craig do you know who William Lane Craig is Anybody know who he is okay he's one of the nation's foremost apologi- Christian apologist what's an apologist somebody that goes around saying I'm sorry no what's an apologist Somebody that defends the gospel. Uh, He is out of Talbert Seminary, connected with uh, Biola University in California, William Lane Craig. Uh, A man that's being used in the college world today as much as anybody in the area of apologetics. Uh, This guy, what was his name? Ezra. Ezra. Has invited people like him. They do like... uh, after their music and all they'll have somebody like a William Lane Craig uh, talk for an hour, hour and a half for instance on defending the resurrection of Jesus Christ and then the audience gets to hammer him with questions I mean just all kinds of things going on and uh, next week they may invite somebody different but very deep and in-depth Christian discussions and lengthy presentations followed by Q&A sessions. And they're seeing person after person after person come to faith in Christ. Again, we're not in Mayberry anymore, are we? Yes. They... uh, the religious leaders criticized Jesus because he was going to the homes of publicans and prostitutes and sinners. In fact, in Luke chapter 15, the start of the chapter that has the parable of the prodigal son in it, that's why they're so mad at Jesus because he's going to places like that. So... Uh, Wherever we find ourselves in today's world, we're gonna we're gonna have to live with the mindset, we're gonna have to go to the lost. Because the lost aren't coming to us anymore. The come and hear gospel, that was never the gospel. The gospel was always go and tell. And for Decades and decades and decades and decades, we've made it come and hear. But the problem in 2020 is they're not coming and hearing anymore. So if they're going to hear, we've got to go and tell. Right?
2: Uh, It brings to mind uh, the founding of Billy Graham's radio ministry. Very similar thing. What's up and down the dial? Hmm. Sure. Right out yep. He was a very, very
0: uh, front runner in that regard, wasn't he? He
2: was. He was a visionary actually. Sure.
0: Sure, absolutely.
2: And the setup was this man was in there preaching, and he mm. took the took the bait, so to speak, and, and did his homework in prayer and mm. fasting and seeking God's will on that, yeah. and didn't listen to the first
0: noyder. He yep, yep. Well, Folks, again tonight we're going to uh, see how humility is essential. And, of course, who's the, who's the premium example, the perfect example in Scripture of humility? Jesus. Philippians 2. Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus, who, being in the form of God, thought it not robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation and, and came and died the death of a criminal on a cross perfect example of humility. We see in the Old Testament along with uh, what's being said about Daniel's people here how Isaiah said that the people of Israel and Judah, you remember what Isaiah said? When Isaiah was commissioned by God and he said, how long do I go? And, And God told Isaiah until the people were cut down like a tree. And, but there was a stump in the ground. And out of the stump would come what? New, new life. Shoot. But they were prideful. And, and they had neglected God. Gone their own way. He was going to cut them down. But yet that wouldn't be the end. There would be restoration. Nebuchadnezzar. And his pride was cut down, yet that was not his end, as we'll see. There was restoration, a testimony to the church today. We need to humble ourselves before the Lord. If we don't humble ourselves, God may humble us. But out of humility comes what? Restoration. Verse 1, King Nebuchadnezzar sent this message to the people of every race and nation and language throughout the world. Peace and prosperity to you. I want you all to know about the miraculous signs and wonders the Most High God has performed for me. How great are His signs, how powerful His wonders. His kingdom will last forever, His rule through all generations. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was living in my palace in comfort and prosperity. But one night I had a dream that frightened me. I saw visions that terrified me. As I lay in my bed, so I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. When all the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and fortune tellers came in, I told them the dream, but they could not tell me what it meant. At last Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. He was named Belshazzar after my God and the spirit of the holy gods is in him. I said to him, Belshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you and that no mystery is too great for you to solve. Now tell me what my dream means. While I was lying in my bed, this is what I dreamed. I saw a large tree in the middle of the earth. The tree grew very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and it was loaded with fruit for all to eat. "'Wild animals lived in its shade, and birds nested in its branches. "'All the world was fed from this tree. "'Then as I lay there uh, dreaming, I saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven. "'The messenger shouted, "'Cut down the tree and lop off its branches. "'Shake off its leaves and scatter its fruit. "'Chase the wild animals from its shade and the birds from its branches.'" But leave the stump and its roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze, and surrounded by tender grass. Now let him be drenched with the dew of heaven, and let him live with the wild animals among the plants of the field. For seven periods of time, let him have the mind of a wild animal instead of the mind of a human. For this has been decreed by the messengers, it is commanded by the holy ones so that everyone may know that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world. He gives them to anyone he chooses, even to the lowliest of people. Belshazzar, that was the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can do so. But you can tell me, because the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Upon hearing this, Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, was overcome for a time... Frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to him, Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dreams and what it means. Belshazzar replied, I wish the events foreshadowed in this dream would happen to your enemies, my lord, and not to you. The dream you saw was growing, the the tree you saw was growing very tall and strong, reaching high into the heavens for all the world to see. It had fresh green leaves and was loaded with fruit for all to eat. Wild animals lived in its shade and birds nested in its branches. That tree, your majesty, is you, for you have grown strong and great. Your greatness reaches up to heaven and your rule to the ends of the earth. Then you saw a messenger, a holy one, coming down from heaven and saying, Cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump. And the roots in the ground, bound with a band of iron and bronze and surrounded by tender grass. Let him be drenched with dew, with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the animals of the field for seven periods of time. This is what the dream means, your majesty. And what the Most High has declared will happen to my Lord the King. You will be driven from human society and you will live in the fields with the wild animals. You will eat grass like a cow and you will be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. But the stump and roots of the tree were left in the ground. This means that you will receive your kingdom back when you have learned that heaven rules. King Nebuchadnezzar, please accept my advice. Stop sinning and do what is right. Break from your wicked past and be merciful to the poor. Perhaps then you will continue to prosper. But all these things did happen to King Nebuchadnezzar. Twelve months later, he was taking a walk on the flat roof of the royal palace in Babylon. As he looked out across the city, he said, Look at this great city of Babylon. By my own mighty power, I have built this beautiful city as my royal residence to display my majestic splendor. While these words were still in his mouth, a voice came down from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, this message is for you. You are no longer ruler of this kingdom. You will be driven from human society. You will live in the fields with the wild animals, and you will eat grass like a cow. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone he chooses. That same hour, the judgment was fulfilled, and Nebuchadnezzar was driven from human society. He ate grass like a cow, and he was drenched with the dew of heaven. He lived this way until his hair was as long as eagle's feathers and his nails were like bird's claws. After this time had passed, I, Nebuchadnezzar, looked up to heaven, my sanity returned, and I praised and worshipped the Most High and honored the One who lives forever. His rule is everlasting, and His kingdom is eternal. All the people of the earth are nothing compared to Him. He does as He pleases among the angels of heaven and among the people of the earth. No one can stop Him or say to Him, what do you mean by doing these things? When my sanity returned to me, so did my honor and glory and kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out and I was restored as head of my kingdom with even greater honor than before. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and glorify and honor the King of heaven. All his acts are just and true and he is able To humble the proud. David Jeremiah writes about an incident in the life of Napoleon. Maybe you've read this story before. On the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was describing to his commanding officer his strategy for that day's military campaign. He said, we'll put the infantry here, and we'll put the cavalry over there, and we'll put the artillery over here. At the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. Well, the commander responded to Napoleon, and he said, but we must never forget that man proposes and God disposes. Well, it said that the little dictator looked at him angrily and said, I want you to understand, sir, Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Well, Victor Hugo, the novelist, wrote from that moment. Waterloo was lost. For God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And by that night, Napoleon was the prisoner of Wellington and France was at the feet of England. Folks, if we could list some of the most horrific sins, what is a sin that you and I might be tempted to overlook? Pride. Exactly. But do you realize in Proverbs chapter 6, I think it's verse 16, God says that is one of the sins that he hates the most. God hates pride what's the New Testament say about that? God opposes the proud, but does what? Gives grace to the humble. When you think about it, you go back in the Bible, trace it back, and, and pride was something the devil was guilty of. I will set my throne above the heavens. I will be like the Most High. He was filled with pride. And then in Genesis 3, what did he tell Eve? You can be like God. You can be like God. In chapter 4, we're going to say goodbye to this man, Nebuchadnezzar. Okay? He's been something of an enigma happening. Sometimes we, we look at him and we see him praising the God of Daniel and Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. But then underneath it all, we see that he's still very much a pagan man and he goes out and does something against God. And God deals with him again. He's back and forth. He'll recognize God with his lips at times, but then most of the time it seems like his heart is far from God. I want you to think about a question how far will God let us go to get our attention how far will God go to discipline us and break us again if we're ever going to be like Daniel's and used in the world and be salt and light we're going to have to do all of these things right here But we're also going to have to be humbly dependent on God. God won't use us until we're humble. God humbles Nebuchadnezzar here before it's all said and done. And what he does with Nebuchadnezzar, he's able to do with us. He did with Israel. He'll he'll humble us today if we're proud. Because God can't use us where God wants to use us if we're walking around saying, look at what I've done and look at what I can achieve. Humility is critical. In Daniel 4, it's like we're reading the king's diary. Now... Given what we have seen from Nebuchadnezzar's uh, cruelty, uh, look at what he's doing in, in chapter 4 as chapter 4 opens. He's praising God. After all, he had every reason to praise God. He's seen the marvelous deeds of God at work. But then we see him reverting right back to some of his old ways. Well, we we see here this dream, the reception of this dream. The the king is in a period of time where he's riding the crest of the wave. He's content, he's prosperous, he's subdued nation after nation. He's at the pinnacle of his power. He's, He's the king of the greatest empire ever, perhaps, to this point. Remember, he's the head of gold, Daniel has told him. Man, if there would have been a Fortune 500 list of nations and nations' leaders, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians would have been on that list, right? Just the city of Babylon itself was magnificent. According to Herodotus, Babylon was about 14 miles square with great outer walls uh, massive walls in thickness and in height. There were 100 massive bronze gates in the walls. There was also a system of inner and outer walls with a water moat between the walls, which made the city very secure. It said that chariots, multiple chariots, could race around the top of the city's walls. The Euphrates River flowed through the middle of the city and was bordered by walls on each side to protect the city from attack by way of the river. Within these walls were beautiful avenues and parks and palaces. Many of the streets were lined with buildings three and four stories high. The famous hanging gardens in Babylon which Nebuchadnezzar had built were large enough to support trees and were considered by the Greeks as one of the seven wonders of the ancient world. So Nebuchadnezzar is out walking on his terrace one night and as we'll see in a minute, and he's looking at all of this and he's feeling pretty proud, isn't he? He's feeling pretty proud. But we know before that, he has this troubling dream. And look at what he says in verse 6. I issued an order calling in all the wise men of Babylon so they could tell me what my dream meant. Now previously, these guys had been batting an average of a thousand, but a thousand in the wrong direction. They have proven to be nothing more than colossal failures. That is, with the exception of Daniel and his buddies. But here Nebuchadnezzar goes calling on them again. Somebody has suggested that this is like folks who rely on the wisdom of the world. The wisdom of the world will fail you time and time again. And yet, what do we see lost people doing? Going right back to the wisdom of the world. Look at verse 8. I'm just skimming across some things tonight. At last, Daniel came in before me and I told him the dream. Here again, like I've mentioned before, sometimes people will avoid our, our counsel. You may be the only one in your family or the only one among your neighbors or the only one at your work who's a Christian. And maybe people even make fun of you. And They'll even joke about you with their friends until a crisis hits. And then who are they going to call on? They're going to call on you when a crisis hits. That's what Nebuchadnezzar does here with, with Daniel. We see the revelation of the dream, verses 19 to 27. Notice what Daniel says in verse 19. He says, upon hearing this... Daniel, also known as Belshazzar, was overcome for a time frightened by the meaning of the dream. Then the king said to me, Belshazzar, don't be alarmed by the dream and what it means. You know, sometimes as preachers, if we've got a joyful message to share, we can't wait to share it. But if God's put something on your heart, that we know is going to upset people, or instead of saying amen, people say, oh my, then we might be troubled about speaking that message, right? And yet we're still called on to speak that message. Daniel's troubled. He remains silent for a while. But then he speaks up. and, And he gives him the message. It's striking that Daniel does not have a vindictive spirit as he tells the king this. Sometimes we want to preach um, judgment, the judgment of God, almost with the vengeance ourselves, right? And again, what do we see here in Daniel? His, His humility and how he's respectful. What's he say here? King, I, I, I could only wish that this was a message for one of your enemies. I don't want to have to tell you this. It, it shows you something of the relationship these two men have built together. Again, let's... Hang on, let's go back up here a minute. You and I are called to be salt and light. But what are we going to have to do to be effective? We're going to have to build relationships too, right? Be respectful of people. Build relationships with them. And through those relationships with lost people, then we're able to tell them what, what God says. Daniel seems to be heartbroken for this pagan king. By the way, what the pagan king comes down with... True or false, this has never been seen before in the world. False. False. The condition that Nebuchadnezzar comes down with... um, is either referred to as lycanthropy, the wolfman syndrome, or boanthropy. A condition where a person goes insane and believes they're a cow or a bull. This condition was actually observed in, in England in 1946 um, with, with a man in a mental institution. That had this condition. Well, in verse 25, Daniel gives an explanation for such a severe thing. He says, you'll be driven from human society. You'll live in the fields with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like a cow. And you'll be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven periods of time will pass while you live this way until what? until you learn that the Most High rules over the kingdoms of the world and gives them to anyone He chooses. God's discipline is not just punitive. It's redemptive, right? God's discipline is redemptive in the long run. What's Daniel saying? You're going to suffer like this until God humbles you. Well, the rest of the story unfolds quickly. For 12 months... The king had time to repent, humble himself. God was giving him time. But like a person under conviction, doesn't deal with it quickly. His heart grows cold. Verse 30, he ends up taking the credit for himself. And it all happened just as God said it would happen. This affliction comes on him. But again, we know it's a happy ending to the story And in the end, Nebuchadnezzar learns his lesson. Personally, I think if Nebuchadnezzar is a converted man, he's not converted until the end of chapter 4. Because in the previous chapters, he's just kind of mouthing words of praise to Daniel's God. But scholars believe that maybe finally at the end of chapter 4... After he's been disciplined, he finally humbles himself before God. And if, if, if he is a converted man, that's when it happens. Is he? I don't know. I'm saying if he is a converted man, I think this is when it happens. At the end of chapter 4. Well, again, what do we know about Israel, they were humbled. They were a tree cut down. But was that going to be the end? No. No. Not going to be the end. Hope. God may humble you today. Is that the end? No. There's restoration and God's work in and through you after that if, if you'll humble yourself before Him. Aren't you glad the way that God brings beauty out of ashes? Aren't you thankful for that? God judges and disciplines us because He loves us. And his discipline can be very costly and very painful. And his discipline can last until we get the message. Now again, how do we model? If, if you see a king like this and God despised pride in him, God despises pride in you and me too. So, how do we model humility to the world and witness through that? How, how can we stand out from the world and be so? Because the world conducts itself in such arrogancy and such pride. How can we be different? Well, not boasting, not bragging. Living a life in attitude, words, and conduct that, sh- that demonstrates we're absolutely nothing apart from Jesus Christ, right? John 15, Jesus said, I'm the vine, you're the branches. You can do nothing apart from me. Abide in me and let my words abide in you. And over and over again, he says, you're nothing without me and you can do nothing without me. Church, Do we really live with that? Do you live and do I live with that kind of attitude? Demonstrated to lost people around us. That we are humble people who depend on the Lord and we are nothing without Him and we can't do anything without Him. Or do we conduct ourselves in some of the same type arrogance that we see of people in the world today? Don't you just hate to see a professing Christian who struts around with pride and arrogance? It's kind of like, look at me. Look at what I've done. Don't you want to be like me? No. Another way we can demonstrate humility, serving others. Because what's pride say? Pride says you serve me. You be attentive to me. But humility says, I'll serve you. And I'll humble myself before you. Another way, practical way, testifying how we struggle and need God to, uh, to teach us and show us his ways. And in other words, not acting like we're perfect. What do some people in the world today say about Christians? You people act like you're perfect. You people act like you just act like you're untouchable and you're perfect. And I think just being very honest with people. If they're going through something, how we might struggle through that, right? Maybe even tell them how you failed and what God taught you through it and how you were able to deal with that. Also, just being honest and saying, I don't know about that. I just don't know. But I tell you what, if you'll stick with me, we'll go and look at that together and we'll learn. Just, just some ways that you and I can Demonstrate humility. Because again, what are we seeing in this chapter? How God despises pride. And how God can humble us. It's better to humble ourselves before Him, right? Even, think of this, even kings in the world... Are nothing before our God. Kings who think they have all the answers and all the power and they only stand by God's grace. Humility. If we are going to be instruments of salt and light in the world, we've got to be humble. Now, Again, this is not a chapter about Daniel's humility. But we know that Daniel's humility has already been demonstrated through the previous three chapters. So this chapter isn't illustrating Daniel's humility. It's it's illustrating God breaking a powerful king. But again, we see in this, if we're going to be used by God we certainly see how he despises pride and we need to humble ourselves. And we can't say, look at what I've done and look at what I've accomplished. How else? How else can we demonstrate humility in a lost world? Anybody? You what? I'm I'm sorry. Okay, not just being legalistic and proud of what we've done in that sense. Oh, I've obeyed this. I've done this. Putting others' needs first. Mm-hmm. How just how real Daniel was and his buddies, yeah, yeah, authenticity, and again, that's what the world is looking for—Christians who will be authentic, will be humble. So we're starting to see some characteristics in the book of Daniel. Some characteristics that God will use to help us be a witness to those around us. Right? And what we see here is a negative example in how God dealt with the negative example and got this guy to turn around. How determined are you and how determined am I to go out though and reach a lost world and be humble and be devoted to God. Stand on convictions, not compromise. How determined are we to do that? Will we do that? The the book of Daniel just continues to amaze me how God used these four young men in a climate that was unlike anything you and I will experience that same way, but very much like what we go through every day in a pagan world. And we can be tempted to sit down and say it's no use. I can't make a difference. But the book of Daniel shows us you can make a difference. You can. With God's help. Yes. Okay. Well, let's close. Father, we we thank you for the the lessons that are just packed into this little book all the way through it every chapter every verse with inspired lessons for your people to learn and Lord we think think of this young man the boldness that he displayed day in and day out in his life and We think of Deuteronomy 6, how his parents must have carried out Deuteronomy 6 in his life. That tells parents that when they sit down, when they lay down, when they rise up and go about their daily lives at home to instruct their kids in the faith. And Daniel's parents must have done an exemplary job with that. Because here's a young man, perhaps as young as 14 or 15 when you started using him the way you did and he made a tremendous difference in a pagan environment lord sometimes we try to wait until circumstances are exactly like we want them to be i'll serve when this happens or that happens and And we want a perfect scenario. And yet, Lord, we know that the world is a messy place. It's a dark place. It's a lost place. And you're calling your people to go to where people are and reach them with the gospel. Help us to be Daniels. In 2020. For your sake. And your glory. For it's in Jesus name that we pray. Amen.